Hi, Julie. Hey, Lisa. How's it going? Uh, it's going well. We were just saying how quickly time is going and how things are sneaking up on us so quickly. And um, Boston is three weeks from Monday, which is um, really just even hard to, to grasp. Like, where has the time gone? I don't know. I feel like because, and we've said this before, because Boston is twice this year, we, we really, it was one of those things where we felt like we had plenty of time. And then all of a sudden we realized, holy cow, we have three weeks. We need to plan our shakeout run. And um, we also have another big thing in store for Boston weekend, which we'll talk about in a moment. But it just feels like everything kind of crept up on us. Not complaining at all. I mean, it's, it's wonderful because what a special year we're having to be there twice. I just would prefer not to have to run it twice. <laughs> you know, I was just thinking about that the other day that for many of us who don't have birthdays between October and the, you know, mid-April, that we get to run Boston twice as the same at the same age. So I'm running Boston twice as a 47-year-old. And you similarly are going to be running it twice as a 49-year-old, right? So, you know, this is like an interesting year that we've been the same, not that it matters that much, you know, but I thought it was just interesting that, you know, we get to run it twice at the same age. Yeah, I never thought about it that way, but you're absolutely right. And yeah, thanks for reminding me again that I'm going to be 50 soon. It's all good. New age group. Look great. <laughs> thanks, <Right>? man. <laughs> So um, this is, this weekend is probably for most people, and if they're listening, um, you know, as as this podcast comes out, this is probably your last big long run before um, taper. Um, some people may do a shorter taper, some may, people may do a longer taper. But if you're doing kind of the traditional three week taper, this is the last weekend for a long run. So this is the opportunity we encourage our runners. We even put it on their calendars to practice everything: pre race dinner, um, race morning nutrition. If you can schedule your run so that you go at about the same time your Boston wave is starting, wake up, have your breakfast that you plan to have on race day. Really, this is your last true chance to really do a, a run through on nutrition, on, um, you know, of course, depending on weather, but gear, clothing, um, hydration, mental strategies. That's a big one um, on this last long run, really practice those mental strategies of breaking the run down of positive mantras of, um, you know, thinking about on race to starting to visualize race day. So um, this is, this is a great opportunity to do that. For sure. Thank you for the reminder. And also with respect to that, don't do it too much. Don't make this last long run your marathon. So we understand that everyone's getting excited and certainly a dress rehearsal in, in different contexts means just that, running through it exactly how you would do it on the day of performance. But with this dress rehearsal, it's tricky because we don't want to run the race before the race. So practice nutrition. Of course, if you feel like you are um, fit enough to do this as well. Feel free to add in some tempo miles and do your tempo workout within your long run. But if you are someone that falls slightly in the category that we talked a lot about last week with Rachel Miller, then this is a great opportunity to practice all the things you just mentioned, Lisa, but not with full force, making sure that you conserve and keep your eye on the goal, which is to get to the start line and the finish line healthy. And we say this a lot and it's worth repeating it's so much better to get to the start line a little under train than over train. Uh, so yeah, but I do love your suggestion, Lisa, of 
running um, around the time of your wave, particularly if it's a little warmer this weekend. Uh, we're not acclimated, and what a great opportunity to work on running in some hotter temperatures if that's available to you. Yeah, unfortunately, it's not going to be here. We're going back to winter temperatures, but um, but still, just mental the mental part of waking up and having a bunch of hours before you go out for your run, I think, is is really helpful uh, for Boston. And one thing I would add to what you were saying before is, you know, to to not make this your your race or your target and pay for it on race day. Um, if you're somebody who runs a little bit slower or for whatever reason you're running slower this weekend, cap it out at three hours. Anything over three hours really just starts to put more strain on your muscles and tendons and more strain on your body than benefit that you're getting back. So cap it at three hours. If that means it's 18 miles or 17 miles or whatever that is, that's good. Three hours is plenty. So, you know, again, if you're somebody who's running a little um, on this on this quote unquote slower side that isn't, you know, it might take you three and a half or four hours to get in 20 miles, you don't have to, you don't have to do that full distance. It, it, that's, a, that's a lot of strain on your body this close to race day. Amen. Great, great point, Lisa. So we're super excited, everyone, because those who are going to be in Boston, we have two events planned for the weekend that we are really excited about. What not in addition to the race, because the race is the event. So we, we always get to Sunday night. We're like, oh shoot, we have we have Toronto Marathon tomorrow. Turn it. So yeah. pretty much. <laughs> so the first is that we are doing a live podcast. We've mentioned this before, but we now have ironed out the details with the host of the podcast Strides Forward, Cherie Turner. And um, we are super excited to um, welcome some fabulous guests. And the theme of our podcast event is going to be women. Uh, we're honoring the 50th anniversary of women running officially the Boston Marathon. And we will have two very special women on this panel. And details will be provided when tickets go on. Um, we don't want to say sales. Well, we're going to be, there, there will be a nominal fee for, for the tickets, but that is going to actually, we have made the decision to uh, donate that nominal fee. That's $10 for tickets. And we're going to donate that nominal fee to the National Association of Black Marathoners in honor of um, one of our guests, Marilyn Bevins, who's uh, one of the first, um, the first um, American black woman to break three hours. And she was second place in the Boston Marathon in 1972, so 50 years ago. Um, she uh, is part of a documentary that is coming out, um, uh, 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 <laughs> Breaking Three, was it Breaking Breaking Three Hours? No, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the, right, Breaking Three Hours. And um, uh, the National Association of Black Marathoners is the largest organization in the country dedicated to black distance running and it is a nonprofit. And we're gonna be donating the proceeds um, of the of, of the ticket sales, uh, again, nominal, nominal fee of $10. And we do have a very limited capacity for um, the, the venue that we will be recording. It's the podcast garage in Alston, Massachusetts, which is just a short, um, probably Uber trip is accessible via public transportation, but probably the easiest way is a quick Uber drive um, to the podcast garage. Doors will open at 3.30 p.m. on Saturday. The recording will start at four o'clock and we'll be wrapping up about five o'clock and our capacity is limited. So tickets will be very limited and they're going to go on sale uh, on Monday. The link will be released and we'll have it on all, all of our social media platforms. I'll make sure it's out there, but if you're interested in joining us, it's gonna be a really great event, um, but make sure to act quick because we have very limited number of tickets that, that, we, can, that we can distribute. Yeah, we're super excited about it. And uh, we'll provide all of the details we just mentioned 
in the Eventbrite, when we release the information and the link on Monday, we don't have the exact time yet, but we will certainly post it everywhere so people can see it. And if you want to email us at julianlisa at runfarthernfaster.com on Monday, uh, most certainly once we have the link, we can certainly get back to you with it if you, for some reason, missed it on social media. We do think it's going to sell out quickly. So hopefully those who are interested in going will be able to get a ticket. And then the second event that we have going on that weekend, in addition to the marathon, of course, is our ShakeOut Run. And we are very excited to um, once again do what we did the last time, uh, reunite with so many runners who we coach all over the country, as well as podcast listeners that we've met and haven't met. So we have, anyone is welcome. It is so fun to connect with everyone in our community and beyond. And even if you um, haven't done it before, we would really, really encourage you to join us. The quick shakeout run we ran last time, I think no more than 20 minutes. Um, and we're meeting at Brewer Fountain at 9 a.m. Um, that's in the Boston Common. And we are doing that on Sunday. We recognize that it is Easter Sunday. And certainly we understand that many people will be attending church services. Our hope is that the churches in Boston will be offering multiple times. And everyone needs a little shakeout run the day before Boston. So we hope that this time works for folks. And we certainly recognize, though, that it is a holiday. And for those who can't make it, we completely understand. But for those who can, we welcome your attendance. We can't wait to see you and meet those of you we haven't met in person yet. And again, we will post this as an event um, on our socials as well as we did last time. And um, yeah, so Brewer Fountain is the same place we met last time. And spread the word, the more the merrier. Yep. It's right in Boston Common near the Park Street Station. It's the Winter Street entrance and it's pretty evident. And when we post the event, we'll post a picture from last year so you can see what the fountain looks like. And even if you don't want to do a shakeout run, maybe you're somebody who just does not want to do a shakeout run the day before. Maybe you're on your way to church or you're on your way back from church. Um, swing by, stop by and see us. We're going to have some goodies to give away like we did last year. So um, come take a picture with us, come hang out, say hello. You don't have to do a shakeout run. We hang out before and after the run. Um, and like you said, it's a short, we do a loop or two around the entire park, which is about, um, you know, a mile or two. You can stop after the first loop, you can do a second loop um, and it's easy pace, um, just a real social fun opportunity to connect with each other. And I thought it was the highlight of our, uh, other than the race, of course, but other than the marathon, <laughs> I really thought, I know both you and I were like on such a high after that. Um, and, and it was so such a fun opportunity. So we hope everyone will come out and even if it's just a quick hello, nine o'clock a.m. on Sunday and say hello to us. Yes. So next up, we are super excited to welcome back for the fourth time on our podcast, Boston Race Director Dave McGilvery, who is going to give some key updates about the upcoming Spring 2022 Boston Marathon. It was such a pleasure to talk to Dave. We understand that Dave's on a lot of podcasts, but you got to listen to this one because Dave provides some really amazing information. Stay tuned until the end. He shares quite a story. Yeah. We will not spoil it, but oh my gosh, it was a great story. And um, Dave also provides a lot of great information for those running Boston for the first time or 50th time, like Dave. It's a really exciting year and there's always new information to, um, to get to make sure that you're able to optimize your race day experience. And we don't want to spoil it, but this is a terrific interview as always. We just adore Dave. He is 
just, he's such an incredible person. And um, yeah, so for those who don't know who Dave McGilvery is, he is the founder of DMSA Sports. He is in the business of raising the self-esteem of people as a race director, not only for the Boston Marathon, but for many other notable races in the New England area and beyond. He also is someone who ran across the country um, to raise money for the Jimmy Fund. He is a philanthropist. He is an avid runner and he is a triathlete and he runs the Boston Marathon after he is done with his duties as the Boston Marathon race director. And he is doing it again this year for the 50th time, which is quite amazing. He is also a heart surgery survivor and he just is an ambassador for all runners and all humans who like to move their bodies to be able to stay healthy and to foster self-esteem. So we are excited to have him back and appreciative of his time. And this is a great interview. All right, let's turn it over to Dave. See you soon, Julie. Have a great week, Lisa. Bye. Dave McGilvery, welcome back to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We're so excited to have you back again. And um, for those who have been living under a rock who don't know who Dave is, Dave is the race director for the Boston Marathon. He is also the owner founder of DMSE Sports, and he also has made a career out of raising the self-esteem and self-confidence in tens of thousands of people. So Dave, it's an honor and a pleasure to talk to you always, and we just wanted to have you back to see how you're doing and also to provide our listeners a little bit of an update about you and the Boston Marathon. So first of all, how's your running going? Well, one of the reasons why, other than speaking with you two, um, I enjoy being on this show is it's the only time that I can be connected to running farther and running faster because that's certainly not happening <laughs> out on the road for me anymore. So it's fun to be able to be part of running further and running faster in this in this sort of way. Um, but running is good. You know, I um, I had open heart triple bypass surgery three years ago, and you know, I didn't know I hadn't have not had never done that before. So I had no experience as to, you know, what the recovery would be and what my experience would be in terms of returning to competitive running. Um, but I'm back, and um, you know, I, I feel good. the the whole The whole uh, diagnosis was that, you know, what I was feeling was a difficulty breathing and some difficulty discomfort in my chest before the uh, surgery, and then. They did the triple bypass, and after the surgery, that those 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 issues went away, and I I don't I don't have trouble breathing when I'm out running, and you know I can still feel the results of the, the trauma of that kind of surgery, but I'm out there and I'm running every day. In fact, a little over a year ago, I committed to running every day for a, a year. I had never done anything like that before. I know there are people out there that have run 20 years in a row, 30 years in a row, 40 years in a row, 50 years in a row. I, I don't know how they are able to do that, but I've never, I never set a goal of running every day for a year. So I said, well, haven't done this one, might as well give it a try. And I completed that about a week and a half ago. And so everyone who's done a streak like that, every one of them said to me, the day you get your year in, take the next day off or it'll never stop. 
So I woke up the next day and I said, I should probably take today off or I'm doomed. And I didn't. <laughs> so I've, I continue so to run going? every day. I, yeah, I keep going. And I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny because you have some people out there saying, well, that's not a wise thing to do. You shouldn't be running every day. You, you know, you got to recover and you got to this and you got to that. Mm -hmm. No, and, and, and generally speaking, they're right. But they don't live in my body and they don't know what I'm going through. And I know me better than anyone else. And I know what I can or can't do and was well within my means. And I never felt distress or I never felt hurt or sore or an injury during this. And if I did, then I would have just abandoned it because my longevity is more important than, than a streak. But that never happened. So I kept going and here I am. You said you don't run farther and faster, but you certainly have been running farther. And and I want to quickly just touch on a question. We were just um, interviewed for an article about running as a master's runner. And, um, you, you know, you alluded before to, you know, you're not running farther and faster anymore. We would argue with that. We think you're still running pretty strong. But but how have your how has your training and your expectations and your goal setting changed as you've gotten older and as you've your body's changed. I mean, you just did a running streak, which obviously is a huge yeah. accomplishment, but how have you approached that getting kind of, you know, maybe slowing down or, 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 or changing your running, changing as you've gotten older? Yeah. Well, you know, it's certainly a humbling experience when I might be running marathons now at a pace that's twice as long as, you know, I've run 229 for the marathon and now I'm running 430 or something. And I'm like, geez, I'm at the halfway point now when I would have been crossing the finish line 30 years ago. And that's a tough concept to kind of accept. But the reality is, you know, you know, you're a human being and this is what this is. This is part of the deal. Um, so it's all perspective. Um, and I, you know, I I have a motto in my life. It, it's my game. So it's. So it's my rules. So you set your own rules and your own realistic expectations. So I'm reasonable with myself. I mean, I do get disappointed um, that, you know, if I'm, I jump in a race and I want to run a certain pace and I just can't anymore, it's hard to accept it. But I also look on the flip side of it and say, oh, I'm one of the lucky ones that A, woke up this morning and B, I'm out here doing something. And um, not everyone gets that opportunity. You know, I've run over 100, over 160,000 miles. I've run 165 marathons. I've done nine Ironman triathlons in Hawaii and run across the country a couple of times and up the East Coast and 24-hour swims and bikes and runs and World Marathon Challenge and all these different things. Run my age on my birthday. So one would think that I would have pretty much destroyed my body by now, but knock on wood, not to jinx myself, but everything's intact and I'm good. Knees is the original knees, hips are the original hips. Um, so maybe it's biomechanics, maybe it's genetics, maybe it's just backing off a little bit when there's an onset of something coming down the road and I better like, okay, I gotta, you know, I gotta treat the cause and not necessarily just the problem. And I think, I think I've been able to, to get through, you know, um, something that maybe other people who, who tried to do this much sort of, you know, um, ended up, you know, sort of without official knees and hips. Can, I, can we ask you a couple of specific questions? Because so many of our listeners are going through um, what you just described, where they're out there doing all the things, but maybe their times aren't the same as they used to be. But really the goal changes and that goal is to be able to continue doing those things injury-free. So can you get into a couple of 
specifics of things that you do in your running routine that you think really help you to be able to continue doing what you're doing, particularly with respect to the running streak you just achieved. What do you do to stay injury-free, knock on wood, so that you can continue doing the things you love? Well, I think it's a combination of so many different things. Um, you know, one is, again, um, not doing too much too soon, um, not putting yourself in a, in a, you know, a dangerous situation in terms of if you haven't, I've always felt that it, in order to achieve a goal and set a goal, you have to earn the right to do that goal. And that means doing the homework and earning the right and progressively getting yourself. I mean, the body, the human body has far greater powers of adaptability and endurance than most people give it credit for. But you can't, you know, there's, you, you can't set reckless goals, right? So for me, it, I'll never say to someone I'm going to do something unless I've really thought it out clearly, unless I, I honestly feel I've earned the right to do it. And, and because if you, if you recklessly set a goal and then you go try to do it and you haven't done the work, you're going to get hurt. Well, I, I have almost never gotten hurt, but there are times when I have. And what I do is I, I don't focus on the problem. I focus on the cause, right? So when I was running across America doing 40, 50 miles a day back in 78, I remember I was around a thousand miles into the run and I was in the desert and my left knee just started falling apart on me. And I'm like, what the heck's going on? And my guys threw me in the motorhome and they drove me to a hospital and I went into the emergency room and the doctor looked at it and he says, um, how do you think it happened? And I said, I don't know, I was out jogging and uh, it just happened. You know, if I told him I was running 40, 50 miles a day, he would have said, maybe you should stop doing that, you know, <laughs> and your injury will go away. And I also knew that I was fit and I could handle this. I knew I could handle the punishment of 40, 50 a day. I had trained for it. I had earned the right for it. So I left the emergency room and my guys were driving me back where I dropped off um, um, earlier in the day. I had just done 15 miles and I had another 30 to go. And I figured it out. As we were driving down the road, I was looking at the road and the road in the desert was really crowned, pitched. And I was running all my miles on one side of the road. And instead of alternating, because I always like to you know, run facing traffic and looking at what, what's about to hit me versus you know, running and having traffic come up behind me. And I said, maybe that's it. One leg's doing more work than the other. So I started alternating both sides of the road and the pain and the situation went away totally went away. And if I didn't figure that out in my head, I would never have made it across America. I would have had a bail. Um, so it's a matter of being smart and intelligent about your own capabilities, your own body. And, you know, it's, it's, it's good to talk to doctors or other people who've had injuries or read books, but your biggest, your, your sort of biggest teacher is out on the road, you know, and changing things up and trying to control the variables and what's causing this. So, in terms of me, you know, footwear is critical because, you know, everything, everything happens from the, from the bottom up, you know, whatever injuries you have in running are caused by your feet, you know, your gait cycle and all that, your biomechanics. So what you wear for footwear, I think is critical. So you have to find something that works for you. Um, so go to a specialty store and be evaluated and make sure you 
put in a pair of shoes that work for you. Um, a lot of times what I do, believe it or not, is I don't wear the same pair of shoes over and over and over again. When I ran across the country, I'd run 10 miles, go in a motorhome, change my shoes to a different pair of shoes, go back out. I felt like so refreshed, ran another 10, back in the motorhome, changed my shoes again. So I kept alternating it. And so I wasn't accentuating the same muscle group all the time. It gave me a whole fresh life. So I was running 50 miles a day and people were saying, how the heck are you doing that? Well, I got some little tricks that I do that I'm not going to tell you about. <laughs> that's, that's getting me through each and every day. So it's things like that, 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 you know, that, that I have figured out for myself that have been able to keep me running and not you know, not laid up in a reclining chair somewhere. So speaking of shoes and upcoming races, have you um, changed your shoes for, for your net for, for Boston or have you kind of jumped on the carbon plate bandwagon? Have you, have you experimented with different types of shoes? Or are you sticking with what, what works for you for this year? Yeah, no, I wouldn't change things last minute, but it's so funny. You even mention it because we were at a organizing committee meeting last night and our pro athlete um, uh, manager stood up and, talking about how we're going to check shoes at registration for the professional athletes. And I wrote to her this morning and I said, you know, I know a little bit about this, but not enough. Can you send me some data? I'm just really intrigued by, you know, you, you know, world athletics and US 18F rules on, on what's acceptable and what isn't and just all of it, you know. And then I facetiously said to her, gee, you think if I wore the uh, Nike Vaporflies, I'd be able to run, you know, 15 minutes faster. She says, I wouldn't change what you're doing right now. I said, no, no, I'm not going to do that. So it's intriguing to think about, boy, if you put on a certain pair of shoes, you know, and it's all about recovery. It isn't about running. It's able to do the work and then be able to recover and work harder the next day. So you get yourself into, it isn't the shoes that's making you run faster. It's the shoes that's making you be able to do the work to run faster. That's my assessment of what this is all about. Yeah, we agree. And we also say stick with what, what's worked for you. If it isn't broken, don't try to fix it. There's no magic, yeah. um, no magic bullet for, for running faster. Um, so tell us a little bit about your preparation. This is going to be your 50th Boston Marathon. And you typically run it in the evening now after a full day of directing the race and after a full several weeks of preparation for directing the race, which is exhausting, I'm sure. So tell us about um, your plans for this year. I think it's going to be special yeah. and tell us how, you know, what, what you're thinking about and, and what it's going to be like for you this year. Well, you know, when I did my first one, um, I actually didn't finish in 1972. I was 17 years old, made it to the hills in Newton and went down for the count, got taken to the Newton Wellesley Hospital in an ambulance and vowed to come back the next year and do it again and I did and I was able to finish and I committed to myself on that day in 1973 that I was going to run this race every year for the rest of my life and you know I started running it and I ran it 15 years in a row and then I got offered the job to help direct it a bit and I was like ah what do I do I committed to running in it and now they want me to help run it you know direct it manage it I was, it took me weeks to make a decision. And then I decided, how can I pass up the opportunity to help direct and manage the most prestigious marathon in the world? So I took the job. And then, you know, at the, at that day, you know, I was standing at the finish line, high five and all the runners. And I just, I, you know, there was a pit in my stomach and I, I was feeling 
self-pity because I hadn't run and I committed that I would do this. So I hitched a ride back to the start at eight o'clock at night and ran the whole thing by myself, finished a little after 11, and thus began the tradition of running the marathon every year after everyone else finishes. You know, when I started that, I was in my 30s. Now I'm 67 and I'm smacking myself in the head saying, what were you thinking? Um, it, was, it was not easy, but it wasn't as strenuous then as it is today. Um, it's a long day. I got to be really careful. You know, it's funny. Most runners, they worry about how much training they did, uh, which would impact their performance on race day. And yeah, mine is the same. I have to train, but it's for me, it's more what happens during the day that impacts what happens to me at night. If it's a long, strenuous day and I haven't been able to eat anything and I've been on my feet for 12 hours, I'm riding on a motor scooter with the leaders for over two hours and, you know, all the stress of all of it. And then it's like, oh yeah, time to go, you know, time to go run a marathon. It's like, I break all the rules, like all the rules, but it is what it is. Right. And I wouldn't have changed anything. So, so this is the 35th year at night and the 50th overall. So um, since it is somewhat of a special year, I invited a lot of the folks who, have run with me over the years to come back and, and run run the 50th with me. So normally I have four or five guys running with me at night and um, this year I'll have 30. <laughs> so um, that's like wave five, um, but all kidding aside, um, these are folks who have run intermittently throughout the last 10 or 20 years. So um, I'm, I'm gonna not put a lot of pressure on myself to run hard or run fast. Um, but it's more just to enjoy it and savor the moment um, and enjoy the camaraderie with all these other folks and um, just get myself across that finish line for the 50th time. It sounds like it's just going to be so much fun and a big party reuniting with uh, 30 of your friends. And yeah. my my guess is that it will fly by because you will be so focused on connecting with all the people that are there to support you. So I hope that is the case. And we would be remiss if we didn't mention that, of course, it's also the 50th anniversary of women being able to run Boston officially. And how exciting that your anniversary coincides with that. Can you talk a little bit about what events will transpire that weekend? And are you going to be a part of any of those events personally? Because I would imagine you know a lot of the, of the women running personally. No, I think it's, I mean, it is ironic how they coincide, but um, it's pretty fa fascinating to think that 50 years ago, there were eight women running in the marathon officially, and the year before that, uh, none officially, and now almost half the field of 30,000 people are women. Um, it's like, whoa, how did that happen? Um, but it's great, and um, the fact that we're able to celebrate that and have you know, these, these honorary women running in the race, you know, representing the eight who did it back in 1972 um, is, is, you know, obviously um, a, uh, an anniversary that'll be remembered for a long, long time. I mean, just the history of the women, of women, the Joni Benoit Samuelsons or the Catherine Switzers and the Bobby Gibbs and, you know, just, just, all, Dina, just all of them running in the Boston Marathon, Shalane and 
And um, mm. so it'd be, it'd be a great celebration in Boston for, for these women who deserve um, to be celebrated because um, they've motivated so many other women to follow in their footsteps and to participate not only in Boston, but in road racing all over the world. Yeah, I think um, I think people are also looking forward this year to being back to what they consider um, somewhat normal circumstances. So we wanted to talk a little bit about um, your experience in October, our only October Boston that we ever did last Boston. How did it, you know, how did it go in your in your view? You know, it was a it was a one a one off. It was you know, there were a lot of um, moving parts. There were a lot of uncertainties leading up to the race. What do you remember from October and what what, what lessons did you take away from Boston from the October Boston? It's, it was an interesting dynamic because everything leading up to it was what I would consider just to use a simple word, hard. But race day was relatively speaking easy. And what do I mean by that? Hard in that um, we were almost chasing the unicorn. That is, you know, you're never going to get it. We're chasing the, the unknown. Right. There, there was the uncertainty, even though we're planning, we're changing the plans as we're planning the plans. We have to keep changing it because this 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 virus was changing and and all the protocols surrounding it were changing. And, you know, there's there's a constituency of folks involved in in all the decision making, everything from, you know, the the White House to 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 the the state, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, their rules, their policies, to the municipalities within which the race runs through, to the um, medical, our own medical community, medical committee, um, to to just leadership of the BAA. You know, everybody has their own take on how we should do this. And uh, we were very fortunate. We had a COVID advisory group made up of um, some of the most renowned uh, epidemiologists and, and medical physicians, obviously a bit of that here in, in Boston. And they just, they were a sounding board, you know, and we would ping, ping, ping. And, you know, we didn't, we had no else to, nowhere else to go. Like, what do you think of this? And what do you think of that? And they gave us what I would consider a level of comfort and confidence to make hard decisions and not look back and move forward with with the plans and we did and it was you know it was a home run i mean it was a grand slam really because we we did make some significant changes we reduced the field size by about you know 30 percent 20 30 percent to from 30,000 to 20,000 we did this concept of a rolling start which was like a drop and go with no athletes village, no waiting around, but no no sort of sardine packed group where they're screaming and yelling and cheering before the, the gunfires. It's just, we drop you off and you take off. And I think the majority of runners actually liked that a lot because they weren't, you know, they weren't required to hang around on a blade of grass for two hours and wait uh, for, for their start. So all, all of it, when it was all said and done, it really worked out ex extremely well. But what, what what's also challenging is that when you change something and people like it, they expect you to keep it. And But the conditions surrounding that change changed. And so we went back to 30,000 people. And 
the amount of time on the road that we had last year, they, the cities and towns were generous and given, given us another hour, but we had to sort of give that back for this year. So we have less time and more runners, which means we did the math and you can't do this rolling start uh, concept under those parameters. So we, we just took out the playbook from 2019 and said, okay, we're going back to four waves and 7,500 runners in each wave and you know a gap of time between each wave and we're gonna line them up based on ability level. Um, we're gonna deliver them from Boston to Hopkinton in a sophisticated timeline fashion try to minimize the dwell time or the downtime while they're there, but make sure we get them all there in time. And we're gonna go back to the traditional way of, of starting this race. Um, some of the mitigation plans, you know, certainly we're requiring proof of vaccination uh, for all the participants and the volunteers and all of us work in the race. Just to, again, we wanna keep this a safe environment for everybody. Um, so with with certain you know COVID protocols, but also um, the concept of the traditional race, it's a delicate balance between the two. But we feel confident and comfortable going in that um, we'll have a have another epic comeback. <laughs> we have no doubt. We know that's always the, the BAO. BA always delivers a top-notch experience. So I think all runners would, would agree with that. And I think you touched on what a question a lot of runners had was that we did like the, the rolling start. There was none of that, you know, sitting around for two or three hours and figuring out, you know, uh, you know what you're going to do for that time. And um, that, that was nice. So that was a good explanation of, of um, you know, of why it's going back to the way it was before. Um, and, you know, it, it just occurred to me, I'm interested to hear what you think. Um, this year, um, there was no buffer for entry into the Boston Marathon. And you talked about COVID vaccination requirements. Are, uh, you know, I, I'm sure there are a couple of factors that went into maybe a smaller field applying this year so that there was no buffer. Um, but what do you think, um, you know, there were close together races. We just had one in October, vaccination requirements. But what do, why do you think, um, you know, in the past, there's always been a much larger field applying than was able to be admitted. So there was a large buffer between the qualifying time and what um, was actually, you know, who's actually admitted. This year, there was zero buffer. Do you do you have any kind of guess or um, theories of your own of why why that is this year? Well, I mean, again, this is all just speculation on my part. I have no data that supports what I might personally think, but my sense is just that there were very few races for people to run in to qualify. Um, I mean, you know, and again, if somebody qualified two plus years ago, maybe they're not in shape now, two years later. And so they basically said, I'm, I'm not gonna enter a race that I'm not fit enough to run. So I, I just think it's a combination of a, a lot of things. I don't think it's the vaccination requirement uh, that, that basically um, you know, slowed down the application process. I, I truly believe it was a combination of one, just just coming out of the pandemic. I mean, every race, at least that I've been involved in, um, the numbers are, are down. You know, they're down 20%, 30%. And if they're not down, people are, are not registering once you open registration. They're, they're, they're holding back. You know, they don't, 
they don't want to see the race canceled. And then, you know, do they get their refund? They don't know um, what the virus situation is going to look like down the road. So they don't want to commit now and then find themselves worrying about should I or shouldn't I show up? And so there's still a lot of uncertainty. Um, I think the fact that we filled the race, even though we, we filled the race itself, is a testament to, you know, people believing that we're, we're back and we're good and we're safe and the BAA is doing everything to, to keep them safe. The other, <clears throat> the other thing I love about what just happened is everybody who applied got in. You know, and people say to me all the time, what do you, what's the hardest part of your job? Well, not necessarily my job registration, but the hardest thing for me to sort of accept is the fact that you have people work really, really hard um, and run races constantly all over the world and all during the year to try to qualify for Boston. And they finally qualify at some race and then they got to wait seven, eight months to register. And then they go to apply and then and then we select everyone and we fill the field and we turn away X amount of people. And that's gotta be an incredible disappointment. And so, you know, my hope is that we can, we can figure that one out down the road, how better to, to do this so that people who actually do qualify, you know, are almost guaranteed a slot. Um, and this year that actually happened. So and it, no matter what the reason why more people did not apply, I was thrilled by virtue of the fact that just about the exact amount of people we 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 could take applied. So so not one person got turned away. I think that's a good thing. I'd like to see that happen every year. Frankly, <laughs> that's the goal. Absolutely, that was such a uh, silver lining to all of this. Was getting that email to see that everybody was accepted. We were so thrilled. We had so many runners we coached that were so close, and and met the time the qualifying time, but didn't get in over the years. And it was just such a gift. So that was absolutely a silver lining. So yeah. you mentioned a little bit earlier, you said that you have been relying on a COVID advisory advisory committee. We assume that you continue to rely on that committee for um, the upcoming race, particularly with the news coming out of Europe and what's going on there. Um, is it possible if this BA2 thing actually surfaces and becomes a deal that um, you would consider a rolling start again, or is that plan in place no matter what? You mean for, for in three weeks or next year? Yeah, in three weeks. Um, I think we're so close right now. I find it hard to believe that <clears throat> things are going to change. Things can change that quickly. Um, you know, I was talking to our team the other day and we were talking about, you know, it's, it's not COVID that comes around every year and it's not, the unfortunate tragedy of 2013 that we experience every year. What it is, it's weather. And weather is our biggest nemesis. And whether it's heat, whether it's rain, whether it's lightning, whether it's wind, but that's the thing that <clears throat> almost regularly, you know, we, we have to deal with. And especially the time of year, April, it's so unpredictable. It, it can be really hot, could be really cold. It could be snowing, could be hail, could be wind, could be anything. And so we have to plan for all of it. And then when it comes, it's like, ah, what do we do now kind of a thing. And we were talking about um, if there was lightning and we had to evacuate, people were at the start and we had to evacuate and some people stayed on buses. 
and some people had to be evacuated into buildings and some people are hanging out in porches and garages or wherever they went. If all of a sudden it cleared and you blow the whistle and say, okay, come on, come out, come out wherever you are, you know, all of a sudden you can't just put back together again the four waves and the corrals and it's just, you know, that's when it might be a rolling start again. It's just whenever they show up at the line, go, 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 because it would backfire on us if we tried to now try to manage it when people are coming at us from, from all different directions. So, uh, you know, it, you got to think on your feet. Anything's possible. Never say never. You know, you got to be prepared for anything and everything. So for all those runners headed to Boston in a few weeks, especially those that are coming for the first time, what advice do you have for them? And especially to prepare for those uncontrollables and how to account for those. I think a lot of people are nervous about what's the weather going to be like, what, you know, what is it going to, what is it going to be like this year? What's your advice for folks that are headed up in a few weeks? Well, my advice would have been six months, months ago is to simulate all the different types of conditions that you might experience on race day. There's nothing worse than to experience something for the very first time right there on race day. So it's funny because a lot of times, you know, people will say, when are you going to do your long run? And I'll say, I'm going to do it on Saturday. They go, oh, I'm going to do mine on Sunday because Saturday looks like it's going to rain really hard. I said, that's the reason why I'm doing it on Saturday. You know, I said, I want to get out there and experience the worst possible condition in my training. Um, I want to get acclimated. I don't ever want to wake up the morning of a race and be afraid. Like, oh my God, what's going to happen? My feet are going to get soaking wet. Do I need to change my socks? And do I get to put this on or that on a Gore-Tex or whatever it might be? You've already done all of it. You've prepared, you've acclimated, you know, you're ready, you're ready to go. So to eliminate that whole element of surprise and having been through it before is, is the number one way to prepare for race day. Come race day, you know, um, again, I, I, you know, in, in terms of bus loading, I wouldn't wait to the last minute for fear that now you're in a rush. Once you get there, you're rushing down to the start or whatever it might be, you know, get out there early, relax, do all the things you need to do prior to heading down to the start and taking off, you know, that kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> be self-reliant. Don't, yeah, we, we have water and we have certain things out there for you. But there's nothing like the um, feeling secure by taking your own, you know, sustenance and necessities, whatever, whatever you need, try to bring it yourself, you know, and then you're assured you got it. Um, I even bring like TP, toilet paper with me because I could go into a porta john and all of a sudden there's none. And I'm like, ah, what do I do? Right. Well, I have it right in my pocket. I mean, there's all these things that experience plays into so that you can totally avoid disaster, right? And it's nothing worse than right before a marathon, you're freaking out because your watch doesn't work or, you know, like I said, ran out of paper or there's no water or whatever it might be, you know, that cannot happen. That is 100% in your control. And shame on you if you haven't planned accordingly. And then it's running this race on this course which is very different than most marathon courses on the planet. And as most people know that the beginning portion of this race is, you know, um, not severely downhill, but significantly downhill, dropped a couple of hundred 
feet in, in the first few miles. And overall, it, the delta is about 400 feet differential between the start and the finish. And so it's, it's a matter of um, pacing yourself accordingly. Um, don't get caught up in, in, in running a PR for 5K, 10K or 10 miles you know, on the way to a marathon because you're most likely going to crash and burn. Right. And the fastest times that have ever been run on this course, the fastest, and and I can almost say a hundred percent without looking at data, but have been run by runners running negative splits. In other words, running the second half faster than the first half. And the first half is mainly downhill, and the second half is a lot of uphill. And you think the opposite would be the case, but people trash themselves in the first. 13 to 17 miles of this race. And then when they take the turn to start climbing the hills, their quads are gone. And then they're doing the survivor shuffle over the hills. And then as they're running down the final miles on, on Beacon Street, you know, people are passing them. So people are gaining the energy that y'all losing. And, you know, it just, it just, it, it's just a vicious cycle. So the idea is to try to hold back, be patient, be strong going up and over those hills and having having enough left in the tank that you can really enjoy the final you know 5k of this race and then um, take it in strong and finish strong that's great advice it's so important it's so hard to do at boston as you mentioned because it does start out downhill but having the information as you just mentioned previously that is something we can control even if you didn't have the best training cycle, committing to doing a negative split is something basically any runner setting out to run this race can control regardless of the weather or other circumstances by, by having that goal in mind. So we wanted to close out and ask you a question about this because you really are the master of this. And that is the comeback. You often talk about how the best part about setbacks are the comebacks. And a lot of folks running Boston, especially this year and, and in the fall as well, dealt with some setbacks, whether that is respect to injury because of the unusual uh, pandemic running, just doing a little too much and not having a race or COVID itself. And there are a lot of people who are coming to Boston, maybe not having the most ideal training cycle. What advice do you have for those folks who are feeling a little bit insecure and, and facing those setbacks as they approach the start line in a few weeks? So when I, <clears throat> when I ran across the country, I did it for the benefit of the Jimmy Fund. And the Jimmy Fund is the fundraising arm of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. So I went in and I saw the kids who had cancer and there was a sign in the, in the clinic and it said, God made only so many perfect heads. The rest of them have hair on it. And it taught me about <clears throat> turning negatives into a positive, right? And again, that word that's so important in my life anyways, is perspective, right? So, you know, I might've, you know, had a bad day or, you know, didn't have a good run or, I don't know, spilled coffee on my, on my lap or something and feeling awful about myself. And then you walk into the Jimmy Fund Clinic and you see these kids and what they're going through and, you know, you put it in perspective, right? And I think that's the same thing with this whole COVID thing. And um, the fact that people died, right? People lost their lives. People got really, really sick. People lost other people and we're still here. And one interesting thing about the pandemic is that it didn't stop us from doing what we love to do. If anything, more people get out on the road and started running or walking or cycling. And, and it just, it's, you know, the, the whole 
um, aspect of the, the number of people doing our activity increased exponentially, whereas other sports, you know, basically were shut down. So again, just being, feeling fortunate that I made it through it, I'm here, um, I still was able to train and run and get through this, and now I'm at the Holy Grail. And I may not be in the best shape of my life, and I might have a minor injury, but at the same time, I'm here. And not everyone else, not everyone else is. So um, it's, uh, again, it's, it's just a matter of um, understanding that, you know, how fortunate you are to, to be able to do this. That is great advice. And, and I think that's what we're all looking forward to is just being back in Boston. And, and like you have experienced over the last 50 years and we've experienced over many years, there's nothing quite like Boston. And like you, the first year I ever ran Boston, I said, I will be back every year I possibly can. And I think that's such a great um, perspective is just to, that you're, you're there. Um, before we close out, I had one last question for you. Before we started recording, we were talking about um, our recent interviews with um, Judge Craig Mitchell and the Skid Row Running Club. And you mentioned you had started a running club in a corrections facility. And I we, we wanted to hear about your experience doing that and your experience with those runners before we close. Yeah. Out. So it's pretty fascinating. So I got a phone call from a friend who worked at a maximum security prison, Walpole State Prison here in Massachusetts. And he said, hey, um, we're putting on a 10K race inside the prison yard. And um, we called up fame marathoner Bill Rogers and asked him if he would want to come in to run against the inmates. And he took a pass. I'm like, smart guy. And then, but now we want to ask you, Dave, will you come in and run against the inmates. And I said, sure, why not? What can go wrong? You know? So I go, I go into the prison and through all the doors and everything else. And I come out into the prison yard. There's about 400 um, inmates, you know, in the yard and about 50 of them are getting ready to line up for the race. And I was the only one from outside. I didn't know really what to expect. So, you know, I basically get in with the, with the group and, um, Somebody yelled go and off we went. It was like 11 laps and we're, we're running along. And I said to myself while I was running, you know, what's the one thing I shouldn't do in this race? And what it was is win. Don't win this because this is all they have, a prison yard to train. You have all the roads in America, right? So don't win. Well, I was in third place and I'm running around. And then um, all of a sudden the guy in first drops out. I'm like, uh-oh, okay, I'm in second place. I'll just sit here. We're running around, running around. All of a sudden, that guy drops out. Now I find myself in first place. And I had like about five laps to go. And I'm like, I don't know if this is a smart thing to do. And then I thought, well, what, what, do, I, what do I do? And then some of the guys watching were yelling things at me <clears throat> that I can't repeat here, but um, <laughs> that they're going to do to me. And I'm believing them because they've probably done a few things that a little worse than what they're going to do to me. And I, I keep running and, you know, and all of a sudden they're flinging little stones at me and stuff. And I'm like, okay, this is not a good thing. This is a defining moment in my life. What do I do? And I said, you know, if I wimp out, that's not going to be good. And if I win, that's not going to be good. So pick your poison. So I won. And I broke the brake tape, which was a roll of toilet paper. And the guys come up to me and one guy puts his arm around me and he says, hey, 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 you know, great job. We were only kidding. And I went, <clears throat> you were only kidding? 
you were throwing rocks at my head. <laughs> what do you mean you're only kidding? No, we're only kidding. That's great, blah, blah, blah. Well, I befriended them. And I said, guys, I'm coming back. And I started this whole program called the Walpole Prison Yard Runners Club. And I developed this whole running club. The guys actually signed up to be a member of the club. It was an actual USATF sanctioned running club. The first one ever in a maximum security prison. I went back there about 20 times. I gave motivational speaking appearances. I brought other, I put on other races in there. I put on a marathon inside the prison. I gave out plaques and awards. When I ran around New England to raise money for the Jimmy Fund, part of it was running through Walpole Prison. I went into the prison and did part of my run. And then I finished in Gillette Stadium in front of 60,000 people later on that day. The guys in the prison raised money for the Jimmy Fund. And it was interesting because I was every now and then getting ridiculed. Why are you doing this? And I said, why aren't you helping other charities? And I said, well, my theory is this, some of these guys are gonna get out and I'd rather have them better on the way out than the way in. And I said, all I'm teaching them is how to run. And what that is doing is that's raising their level of self-confidence. And I said, I believe that 90% of them are here because they didn't have any self-confidence and they didn't have a support system like I have, my family, my friends, they didn't, right? I don't know what they did, but they didn't. And that's why they're here. But one of the guys, his name is Ralph. I went up to Ralph. I said, Ralph, I swore I would never ask you guys this, but I'm going to ask you. He said, what? I said, why are you here? He says, well, he said, I went to the University of Arizona and I was a wrestler and I was winning everything. I said, you were? I said, yeah, you look pretty studly. He said, yeah, I was winning everything. And he said, and then, um, you know, I was, I was the last one cut from making the Olympic trials. I said, really? I said, you know, my whole life, when I grew up as a kid, I was the last one cut all the time, you know, but, you know, I started, that's why I started running, Ralph. Well, there's a fine line between rejection because he got cut and went this way. I got cut and went that way, right? And so, so, you know, there's a lesson to be learned here. And then what ended up happening, I kept putting on events and, and Ralph could, he could have been an Olympic hero. You know, he, he could have been a motivational speaker if he got that opportunity, that chance to make the Olympic team. And he didn't. And so sometimes you fall off the edge. And so what ended up happening is the prison administration, the, the club got so strong that they said to me, we're going to have to disband this. I said, why? He says, it's just too big. I said, isn't that the idea? Like, this is good for these guys. And they said, no, it's, it's a little risky. And then they took three guys who helped me build this program and they deported them to other prisons around the country. And I said, you know, th that's illegal. Like they, they had no right to do that. These guys didn't do anything wrong. So I went to the attorney general and I did a lot of different things. Long story short, two of them got deported to um, a prison in Mar Marion, Illinois. And the U.S. Marshals went out to get them. And they got them and they're bringing them back to Walpole. And they got caught in a traffic jam in, in um, Hartford, Connecticut. And they escaped. <laughs> so how'd they get away? They ran. So they were able to run and they ran away. <laughs> so the U.S. Marshals are banging on my door going, hey, 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 you know, what's going on with this? I, I, I have nothing to do with any of this. And so this, you know, and, and, and then one of them got 
get caught and he got brought back. The other one got away. And he literally got away for like three years. And all of a sudden I'm watching Unsolved Mysteries on TV. And all of a sudden they have this whole story about these two guys escaping. And I'm like, that's Jean-Marie and Louis. Like, I can't believe it's on TV, right? Well, this guy Jean-Marie was down in Florida. He saw the same program. So he left the area because he had, you know, lived a good life. He was helping kids. He was doing good stuff down in Florida, the whole bit. But he thought, oh, people are going to recognize who he is. So he bolted and he got caught in California, got brought, brought back to Walpole. But while he was in Florida, he met this woman and they were going to get married. But, you know, he, they didn't because he left. But when they brought him back, I get a call from her saying, you know, Jean's back. I said, yes. She says, well, I'm going to come up to Boston. Long story short, um, they got married in the cafeteria at Walpole Prison. And I was I was the best man <laughs> and, at the wedding I mean, and the only man, really. Anyways, so he he and she got deported back to Canada where he was originally from. And he's living there and he's he's fine now. So that's my whole Walpole story. It was pretty amazing um, how all that how all that happened for me. That is a crazy and circuitous story. And thank you so much for sharing that with us because, wow. Um, and of course, what precipitated the story was we were sharing with you um, Skid Row Running Club. So if you haven't awesome. seen it, it's a great documentary, um, something you would absolutely enjoy based on uh, the experience you just shared. And wow, really, I mean, on a separate note, it really illuminates some of the many of the problems with the criminal justice system that the the best thing that ever happened to these guys was taken away from them because it quote was too big. And uh, yeah, anyone listening <laughs> that has any ideas to fix that, uh, th there's a project for you. But uh, mm -hmm. Dave, as always, this hour just flew by. We told you it'd be 45 minutes. And of course it ended up being an hour, our fault, but thank you for spending it with us in your incredibly busy schedule. And we are so excited to run Boston in April, uh, not with you because you'll be running much later, but knowing that you are behind it. And we are so grateful for all of the work you put into this race year after year. You are top notch and that's why the race is top notch. And we just so appreciate everything you do for the race and the running community. And thank you. And thank you for coming on today as well. Thank you. Well, it's, it's a team effort, as you know, I'm just sort of a caretaker. You know, I was here before I was born. I'm just taking care of it for a while and I'll, we'll hand it off this, to the next generation soon. <laughs> Thank you. But you know what? You infuse your values. Your, your values get infused into the Boston Marathon. And that is, is very evident for everybody. And, and like you said, um, you know, as a result, with 30,000 people who leave with a higher level of self-confidence and self-esteem and um, it, there, there's nothing... Uh, really like it. And there's nobody really like you. And I just want to tell you as a quick side comment, my daughter who's home from school was sitting and listening. And she heard you said she, you were 67. And she walked by the screen as we were on and she looked and she said, he's not 67. There's no <laughs> so you look great. Uh, Running does uh, that for us. He's just looking yeah. I'll text, you, I'll text you my birth certificate. You can check that out. <laughs> yeah, we, we believe you, but you know what? It keeps you young looking and young at heart. And yeah. um, we can't wait to celebrate so many wonderful milestones when we're up in Boston in just a few weeks. So thanks for joining us. All right. And we we'll hope to see when you see you. Sounds good. All right. Thanks. Take care. Thank you. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan.
And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.